So today, if you're struggling with consistency in your giving, or if it's never, never been a practice that you've put into practice in your life, I want to encourage you to incorporate giving as a part of your worship because you belong to God. Everything you have belongs to God because you've been blessed so incredibly much and because money matters because our heart matters to God. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this service and for this time. I thank you for how you're speaking to people across this room. Lord, as we look to your word today about prayer, we pray that it would speak to us. Lord, as we give today at some point in the service or over the course of this day, I pray that you would meet people where they are at their point of of faith in you, of stepping out and saying, I'm trusting God with what he's given to me. Lord, that you would bless our lives even so incredibly more than what we currently have that we often don't realize that we often take for granted. Lord, would you continue to bless? Would you continue to give increase? And as you do, would we be faithful to honor you with everything that you've blessed us with? And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We've been talking about powerful prayers that are waiting to be prayed in our lives. Thomas Edison said this. He said, if we did all the things that we were capable of, we would literally astound ourselves. When it comes to the powerful prayers waiting to be prayed in our lives, what it amounts to is really an opportunity and oftentimes a missed opportunity in our lives. Some years ago, an energetic young man began as a clerk in a hardware store. And like many old time hardware stores, the inventory of the store included thousands of dollars worth of items that were really obsolete or seldom called for by customers. The young man was smart enough to know that no thriving business could carry such a large inventory and still show a healthy profit. He proposed a sale to get rid of the items that were in excess. And the owner was reluctant, but finally agreed to let him set up a table in the middle of the store and try to sell off a few of the oldest items. Every product was priced at 10 cents. That must have been a while ago. (laughs) The sale was a success and the young fellow got permission to run a second sale. It too went over just as well as the first. This gave the young clerk an idea. Why not open a store entirely to sell only nickel and dime items? He could run the store for his boss and he could could get the inventory and the supply from the, the boss's store and his friends and different things like that. And the young man's boss was just not enthusiastic about the plan. He said it would never work. He said, you can't find enough items to sell at a nickel and a dime to cause a store to thrive and to prosper. The young man was so disappointed, but he eventually went out head on his own and he made a fortune out of the idea. His name was F.W. Woolworth. And his store was the five and dime store. It was one of the most successful American businesses and it created a model for retail that stores follow even today. His former boss later recognized the missed opportunity and he said that he figures that every time that he had turned his former employee down, it probably cost him a million dollars from seeing the success that his employee went on later to have. When it comes to your prayer life, what are you missing out on by not praying? What are the powerful prayers waiting to be prayed in your life that you've seen and you've heard and you've known and God's moved in the past, but because of busyness, because of schedule, because of other things that are constantly demanding our time and our attention and and, and shouting for, for all of our focus on those things, we fail to pray, which can become the greatest failure of prayer is our failure to pray. In 2006, the New York Times reported something unusual that had happened in Manhattan. Two women, Laura Barnett and Sandra Spann, and they dressed in white and they beckoned people to come in and unburden their souls. 
Miss Barnett would silently flag the attention of someone passing by and point them to the words that had been stenciled on the glass. Air your dirty laundry, it said. 100% confidential, anonymous, free. She would extend a clipboard and a blank sheet of paper, an envelope stamped with the word secret to any takers, and hundreds took that clipboard. Executives and street people, couriers and secretaries, shoppers, joggers would pause and they would write down their secrets. They would write down their sins and, and they would seal it in the envelope and they would hand it to Laura Barnett. Meanwhile, Miss Spannon would quietly paint the portraits of those who stopped to divulge their inner secrets. Once the person was well out of sight and the envelopes were mixed up so you couldn't tell whose was which, the envelope would be opened and the message would be taped to the glass for all to see. The portraits are posed as well, and those who come by read the confessions of the strangers before adding their own. Some of them are silly and some of them are terrible. One said the hermit crab was still alive when I threw it down the trash chute. The other said, I want to see cars explode. Some said things like those people are so selfish. I can't believe them. I can't look them in the eye. I can't believe what they did to me. As the day progresses, the once empty glass of the storefront is papered like a wall of guilt. I'm dating a married man and getting financial compensation in exchange for the guilt. I'm 25 and he's a millionaire. On and on the stories and the secrets and the sins. And this little storefront experiment revealed many things. But the inescapable fact that surfaced across generations and across income levels and social standings was that a lot of people are hiding. They're hiding from the police or from their parents. They're hiding from coaches and teachers. They're hiding things from their bosses. They're hiding things from their spouses. And many people today are hiding from God. And the reality is that all of us blow it. All of us have sinned and all of us have sinned. The Bible is clear that no one is righteous and without sin. In fact, the Bible even clarifies not even one person. We know that because Jesus' work on the cross, there is forgiveness that's available to us. But the Bible is clear that in order for our sin to be forgiven, we must repent and turn away from our sin. Proverbs 28, 13 says, people who conceal their sins will not prosper. But if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. I love how John puts it in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But too often, instead of repenting, instead of turning from our sin, instead of accepting responsibility and seeking forgiveness, we just try to hide it and move on as though it never happened. Likely, if we're honest, this is even true for some of us that are here today. This morning, we're going to look at a prayer that we all need to pray at one time or another. It's a prayer that none of us want to have to pray, but many people are also too proud to pray, but a prayer of repentance and confession that all of us need to pray in our lives. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 51, I want to give you some background on that Psalm today. The Bible gives us an amazing story about David. This is the David that Killed Goliath. This is King David. David, who is the man after God's own heart. But this story is like one of many in the Bible that doesn't sugarcoat the shortcomings and the failures of key and prominent figures. I love that the Bible gives us a full spectrum of a view into individuals' lives. We see the, the awesome, incredible accomplishments 
We see the moments of success and victory, the mountaintop moments, but we also see their failures. We also see their struggles and their trials. And we we understand that a life of following Christ isn't a life of perfection. It isn't a life where there's not trials and struggles, where there's not sin, but it's what happens when that happens that determines our faith. In Christ, And so we see this in David's life. The story found in 2 Samuel chapter 12 sets up what we're going to read today in Psalm 51. The prophet Nathan goes to the King David and he tells him a story about injustice that has occurred in the kingdom. Involving a rich man with many cattle and sheep and herds. And the poor man that just has one little bitty lamb. And as the story goes, the rich man ends up killing the one animal that the poor man has. It's not an animal from his own flock. It's not one of the many uh, sheep from his own herds that he has, but he took the lamb, the only lamb that the poor man had, and he killed that lamb. And David becomes furious and he declares that this is an unacceptable action that cannot be overlooked. In fact, he says, as as any, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. David says, and that's when the prophet makes a statement that's one of the most powerful moments in the entire Bible. When he looks at David, the king, and he says, you are that man. You see, David had been on the roof of his palace one night and he saw a woman named Bathsheba taking a bath. Much like pornography draws people in today, David was drawn in and what David imagined he then demanded David not only committed adultery with Bathsheba, but then he also had her husband Uriah murdered so that he could take Uriah as his own wife. He almost got away with it. But even if you're the king of Israel, you can be sure that your sin will find you out. Even when no one else sees, God sees. Even when no one else knows, God knows. And David has a decision to make at this point when he's confronted with his sin in his life. Will he confess and repent or will he dance around the issue and pretend like it's no big deal? He is, after all, the king. But how David responds is one of the reasons that I believe that the Bible tells us that he's a man after God's own heart. Not because he was perfect. Not because he didn't fail, not because he didn't have sin in his life, but because of how he responded and the prayer that he prayed when he encountered and was willing to to turn head first into the situations and the failures in his life and respond to them. David chooses to humbly and sincerely confess his sin and repent before God and man. And in doing so, he prays one of the most powerful prayers that you're ever going to hear. And we find that in Psalm chapter 51. There's several key components of this prayer that make it a powerful prayer of confession and repentance. And the first thing we see that David does in Psalm 51, verse 1, is that he appeals to the love and the mercy of God. David doesn't appeal to God's justice. He doesn't appeal to God's goodness. He doesn't promise to do better. He doesn't say that he's going to pay God back. He appeals to the love and the mercy of God. Let's read verse 1. It says, have mercy on me, O God. Because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. David mentions this and it's in the the version we just read, it says it's the unfailing love of God. Some versions refer to it as the steadfast love of God. And both of these are a translation from the Hebrew word, which is chesed. 
And chesed is a word that's so rich and so beyond just the meaning that we have of unfailing or steadfast. It's the, 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 this, this word chesed, it's, it gives us the idea of the faithful, covenantal, unstopping, always pursuing, never ending love of God for the undeserving. And what David is doing in this prayer is he's saying, have mercy on me because of your love toward the undeserving, because of your faithful, covenantal, unstoppable, always pursuing, never ending love for the undeserving. Would you please, out of that character of who you are, have mercy on me? It's the same word we see used and described in Psalm 23, 6, where it says, Surely goodness and steadfast love or mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And that's the kind of love that David appeals to because he's blown it, because he's failed. He doesn't deserve mercy. He doesn't deserve forgiveness. But he appeals to this chesed of God, this love, this never-ending love and mercy of God because he knows the character of God. The next phrase is also an amazing one. He says, because of your great compassion, some translations say, because of your abundant mercy. I don't know of any scripture that talks about God being rich in punishment or abundant in wrath, but sometimes that's the idea that we have, that God's just waiting to strike us. He's like, he's like waiting to thump us on the head when we do wrong. That's, that's this idea that we have. But what scripture does talk about is his great compassion and his abundant mercy. And that's really the terms that we should think of God as. Ephesians 2, verse 4 and 5, it talks about our salvation in these same terms. It says, but God being rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. So by grace, you have been saved. That's that grace and that mercy that never fails, that goes after you when you don't deserve it. That's who God is. And David knows that he's not deserving of anything, but he knew God to be a God of abundant love and mercy. Spurgeon has a great quote on this topic. He says, men are greatly terrified at the multitude of their sins. But here is comfort. Our God has multitudes of mercies. If our sins be numbered as the hairs on our head, God's mercies are to be numbered as the stars of heaven. And that's what David appeals to is the mercy of God because he knows he's guilty and undeserving. So after appealing to God's love and mercy... He continues this prayer of repentance with brutal honesty and confession of his sin. In verse 3 and 4 of Psalm chapter 51, he says, For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. David understands the severity of his sin. This is sorely needed in our world today. Too often we see people that are willing to point the finger at others but excuse the sin in their own life. They downplay their own failures. They shrug off their sin as though it's, it's something that doesn't matter. In, March 14, um, uh, in the March 14, 2007 New York Times, John Broder wrote an article about the modern practice of shirking accountability and responsibility. And he shares several examples of what has to be one of the worst excuses of accepting responsibility for actions. Instead of saying, I'm sorry, I'm wrong, I messed up, I blew it, 
People will say things like, mistakes were made. There were certain mistakes that were made. What does that even mean, mistakes were made? It sounds close to a confession of error or even contrition, but it, it really falls short in both of those. It's not quite either one. There's no personal responsibility. And that lack of accepting responsibility and refusing accountability is too common in our world today. We see it in politics. Recently, we've seen it in the sports world. We see it all throughout our society. Maybe you've experienced it firsthand where someone has, has blown it. They've messed up. They've failed. They've, they've blown it so bad and it's so obvious, but they refuse to accept any responsibility in their own lives for what they've done. But if that's not bad enough, it's not just common in our interactions with other people. It's all too common in our own spiritual lives as well. Thomas Watson said, until sin is bitter, Christ will never be sweet. David acknowledges just how deep the sin is within him. It's deeper than his outward actions. David uses three words in Psalm 51. He uses the word iniquity transgression and sin. And these overlap, but intentionally they demonstrate that this is not just a general shortcoming, but it's a rebellion against God. It's evil in the sight of God, what he has done. And our prayer of repentance must include a painfully honest and brokenhearted confession of sin, not just acknowledging mistakes were made. God, I, I pray that you forgive all of us because mistakes have been made but confessing our own specific sin and our, our desperate con condition before God. And David does this. He, he brutally and honestly confesses his sin. And after that, David knows he needs most in his life a cleanup, not a cover-up. Psalm 51, verse 2, he says, Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. And verse 7 through 10, he says, Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, oh God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Several words that are used here in several different translations for, for the idea of cleaning. There's the word purge, purify, wash, remove, blot. All these different words that, that are strong words that don't just give the idea of a gentle rinse. Too often in our lives, we just say, okay, just a gentle rinse and we're going to go on. Let me tell you what would happen in your physical body if all you do day after day, week after week is just a gentle rinse and never a deep clean, never using soap, never really getting to the root of the issue. It's going to smell bad. It's going to look bad. It's going to be bad. And the same is true in your spiritual life. If all you do is just a gentle rinse, I'm going to go to church. I'm going to sing that song. I'm going to feel better about myself. I'm going to pray, God, forgive all of us because mistakes were made. And I'm going to go about my way with just a gentle rinse. It's going to be bad. It's going to smell bad. It's not going to be good at all for you in your spiritual life. Because you're never getting to a place of cleanup. It's just a cover-up. We're just going to sweep everything under the rug and, and everything's going to be okay. But these words that David uses, they're unique and distinct cleaning words. He talks about the hyssop, which is a, an herb that was used for two things. Hyssop was used for scrubbing a person that had leprosy. It was considered to be this, this very strong cleaning herb that, that was used for people with leprosy. And then it was also used for the cleaning of contaminated houses. Not just contaminated like they haven't cleaned up in a while, but like contaminated, like even to the sense of like the spiritual sense of contamination. 
And so David's saying, clean me with the hyssop. Clean me with what's going to go deep. What's going to take care of something that nothing else will. One of these words that he uses is the same word that you would use to describe the, the process of taking your clothes down to the river and scrubbing them until they're clean. David's giving the idea not of a gentle rinse, but of a deep clean that's needed within his life. It talks about the process of cleaning is similar to removing a stain from a severely stained garment to the point that it can no longer be seen and the stain can no longer be remembered. David's not interested in a cover-up in his life. He doesn't rationalize. He doesn't minimize. He doesn't excuse or spin what's been done. He'd lived in denial for a while before he got to this point. He's come to a place of contrition, recognizing that he's not fooled God and he's stopped playing games. And it's, it's important in our lives that we come to a place where we recognize that no matter what it is that you've done, no matter how well that you think you've hidden it from others, God sees and God knows. There's no way to cover that up from the eyes of the Lord as much as you may put a little happy bow on it and, and fool other people. God sees and he knows. And it's time to stop playing games with God and come to a place of sincere repentance in our lives where we say, God, I need you to clean me up on the inside because nothing else is going to work. A gentle rinse isn't going to suffice. And that desire for a cleanup instead of a cover-up leads David to allow God to bring restoration in his life. Psalm 51, verse 11 through 17 says this, Do not banish me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves, and then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. These are words from a man who misses what he once had with God. They're words from a man that realizes that he once had been in a place with God. He once had been in a closeness in his relationship with the Lord. But because of this sin that he'd hidden and had been unrepentant of, it's allowed a wedge to grow between him and his relationship with the Lord. And the hidden sin in all of our lives will do the exact same thing. Sin separates us from the intimate relationship that God desires to have in our lives. David wants that relationship restored. The message version says it like this. Don't throw me out with the trash. David says, don't take your spirit from me. Restore to me what I once have. Allow me to be involved in your plan. Allow me to continue to declare your praise like I once used to do. David knows that there's a God that heals and restores. And it doesn't just go back to how things were, but he makes all things new. And today I want you to know in your life, regardless of how far that you've come down the path of sin and that you've wandered from your relationship with the Lord, there's a God that heals and restores and makes all things new. And he's able to do it in your life if you're willing to come clean with your sin and become right before God. Kevin, if you'll come and just begin to play softly. Paul describes this process in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And it's beautiful. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 through 20, he says that if anyone is in Christ, there he is a new creation. 
Old things have passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God's heart is not for punishment of your sin. God takes no pleasure in the punishment of our sin. He didn't create you to be in a distant relationship from him. He didn't create you for punishment of your sin. He created you for a closeness of relationship with him. He created you for, to live in a place of forgiveness. He, in fact, desired that forgiveness and that wholeness for you so much that he saw the heavy price tag of our sin and he said, I'm going to pay it for you. And I'm not going to pay it by just giving something that I don't care about. I'm going to give the life of my one and only son to cover the debt of the sin that you have in your life. Because the magnitude of that price is something that you could never pay. But God doesn't want you to walk in sin and unforgiveness and in distance of relationship from him. God's desire for your life is for you to come clean before him, for you to be repentant and to discover forgiveness in your life. When it comes to sin and repentance, you need to know that God does not discard us because of our sin. There are consequences for our sin. But God is a God of restoration. He has a purpose for your life. He still has a purpose for your life. He still wants to use you in his kingdom. There's nothing that you've done that God can't forgive and restore in your life. But that process doesn't start until we own what it is that we've done, until we come clean before God, until we come before him and say, God, I'm throwing myself on your mercy. God, I'm going to be brutally honest. I'm going to confess and come clean before you. You already know the depth of my sin. You've already seen exactly what's happened. But God, I've, I've allowed the, the hidden nature of the sin to drive a wedge between you and me and the intimacy that you desire to have because I'm pretending that you haven't seen it. I'm doing the same thing that Adam and Eve did in the garden when they covered up and said, I'm going to put these leaves over and God won't know. God knows. God already knows. You may have fooled a lot of people. You may be trying to fool yourself, but your own healing process in the physical is not going to be complete until you deal with this in nature as well. God's desire for our lives is wholeness spiritually, physically, emotionally, mentally. God's desire for us is wholeness. And when we deal with these hidden areas of our lives, when we deal with these unresolved conflict areas, when we deal with these sin and these, these issues in our lives that distance us from God, it brings about a wholeness in our physical nature as well. It's not just adultery and murder that separate us from God. Every sin is a treason against God. But the message of the psalm is clear. The worst and vilest offender can be forgiven if they turn with humility to God and confess their sins and receive God's forgiveness. There's hope for us today. There's hope for us today, wherever you are, whatever you've done, however, how far you've gone down that road. It's easy to see the sin of others, but seeing our own sin sometimes is hard. 
It took David nearly a year and a visit from the prophet in order for him to see it. But when he does, he doesn't point the finger. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't blame others. He humbly confesses and admits his sin. And he throws himself on the mercy of God. When was the last time that you prayed a powerful prayer of repentance and confession of your sin? If you never have, then today is the day for you to come clean with God, for you to be in right standing with him. It's a powerful prayer. It's not a prayer that we just pray once in our life and say, God, mistakes have been made. Mistakes are going to be made. So would you kind of cover all that stuff and we'll just we'll call it good. That's not the way that it works. God's desire for us is to come humbly and honestly before him and confess our sins. And if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us. Prayer of repentance is one of the most powerful prayers you can pray. It's, it begins when we start using the words I and my. We've got to own the sin and the actions in our life. We've got to own the condition of our heart and where we are. You're never going to turn away from a sin that you don't own. And you're never going to turn from a sin that you don't hate. As long as you love it and make excuses for it and all those things, it's, it's just going to continue to grow. Repentance is turning from sin, it's turning to God, and it's trusting the gospel. That's simply it. Repentance is turning from sin, it's turning to God, and it's trusting the gospel. The gospel that says there's forgiveness and that our debt has been paid and that all we have to do is confess our sin and he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. What repentance does is it changes us. Repentance isn't easy. Healing is a process that takes time. It requires us to be broken. We can't rush it. We can't change it overnight. But when we repent, God begins to do a changing work in our lives. Repentance also changes our community. A forgiven sinner is a contagious one. It's a contagious person that will, will, will testify to the greatness of God, will testify to once I was here, but now I'm here. Look what the Lord has done in my life. And we, when we realize that we can't scare God with our sin, all of a sudden we become people who aren't easily scared of the sin of others because we know that in our own lives we're sinners that are saved by grace. And if it, if it weren't for the grace and the mercy of God that forgives the undeserving, then we would be just among the worst of sinners in our own life. And so it's not a place for us us to point fingers, but a place for us to point to Jesus who's provided the forgiveness of our sins and to point people to a prayer of confession and repentance and a right standing with God. That's what repentance does. It changes us and it changes our community. We allow me to pray over you today. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for your presence that's here, that's calling people home, that's calling people to repentance, that you are the one that convicts of sin, God. And you're the one that calls us to a closer relationship with you. And Lord, I pray that as you're doing that across this room today, that Lord, you would begin to speak to individuals right where they are. Lord, you see the hearts and the conditions of our hearts. And we know from your word that that condition is that we're utterly deceitful. We're sinful, but Lord, we're, we're your children and you love us and your mercy for us is great. And so, Lord, as we turn to you for forgiveness, as we turn to you in repentance and confession, Lord, you do a deep work that's so greater than anything that we could possibly imagine. 
it's a forgiveness that this world doesn't understand and, and isn't known, God. It's a love like no other. And so, Lord, I pray that today your love and your mercy would be great in this room. Lord, I pray that as people acknowledge their condition of their heart and their condition of their sin, the Lord, as they turn to you and confess and repent, that, Lord, you would bring about healing and restoration and wholeness in lives. God, I pray that where the, the place of unforgiveness and unrepentance for situations in people's lives has caused a root of bitterness, has caused to even anxiety and, and, and mental health concerns and challenges in their physical nature. God, I pray that those things would be reversed as they seek forgiveness from you and others, as they confess and come clean. Lord, that you would begin to do a deep work in emotions, in minds, in hearts, Lord, would you bring about the wholeness for your children today in a way that only you can. I thank you for that, God. I thank you for that. I want to challenge you and encourage you this morning and give you an opportunity. When we don't deal with our sin privately, God deals with it oftentimes publicly. But if we confess our sins and we deal with it privately when God speaks to us, God will allow us to deal with it privately. And if we confess our sins, God's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Today, if there's sin that's at your door, maybe it's been in the driver's seat of your life. Its desire is to master you, but you can defeat it today. You can overcome that sin, the sin that's been perpetual in your life, the sin that's been a repetitive issue in your life, the sin that has, has been there and is unrepentant, unconfessed, and you've allowed it to grow. Here's the thing you need to know about sin is sin grows best in the dark. The, the greatest way for you to get rid of it is confess it to God and to tell someone else about it for accountability. I believe that today can be your day to be free. Today can be your day to be restored. Today is the day of salvation. And this is a powerful prayer. It's not a prayer that just hypothetically you can pray one day. This is a powerful prayer that you can pray today. So with every head bowed and every eye closed across this room, this is just a moment between individuals and God, this is not anyone else's business. But today, if you would say, you know what, I'm in a place that I need to repent. I need to pray the prayer of repentance in my life. I need to confess the sin to God. I want to get right with God today. Would you just slip your hand up and write back down in this room today? Thank you. All over this room, all over this room, is there anyone else today? There's issues in my life. I need to repent.